Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 12 of the Elliot Loney podcast. Today I was joined by my good friend and comedian, Joe White. He's a fantastic stand-up, someone I have a lot of respect for, but he also has an incredible story. And he speaks very candidly about his journey in this podcast, and I think this is going to be a great listen and a great watch for anyone interested. I implore you to keep watching. His story deserves to be heard. Thanks for the support. Don't forget to like and subscribe to my channel for more podcasts and more videos, and enjoy this one. It's a great chat. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by my good friend and comedian, Joe White. Joe White, welcome to the Elliot Learning Podcast, mate. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, bro. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. Always a pleasure. Now, we were having a conversation just before we started about my terrible laptop. And uh, for anyone that is wondering why we were laughing, I had a Vietnamese salesman completely rip me off, charge me about $4,000 for a laptop that doesn't work. And Joe and I yeah. were having a laugh about it. So that's the reason behind it. I was surprised you didn't burn the place down. That was, that was the other thing. Because... I don't know if I get ripped off $4,000, how I would take it, you know? Yeah, well, as I said, mate, I tried my very best, but this Vietnamese salesman, he was being so shady, pretended <laughs> he didn't know who I was, man. Like, he didn't... You know, I tapped him on the shoulder, I waved my receipt in his face, and he's like, me no know you, me never see you before. <laughs> I never sell you laptop, don't know you, don't know you, go away, go away. I was like, mate, I was here like literally 30 days ago, if that. Like, I've got the receipt. You were the one that sold it to me. It was you. He's like, <laughs> no, me never sell you dodgy laptop. Me no do that. Me no do that. You know what, man? It's Considering the times we're at right now, I think everyone's just been dodgy to try and get some extra cash out of it. Yeah, everyone's on survival mode. You see people's true colours when money is scarce and then see how they behave and all. Absolutely. Um, but I would love to see you, Russell Peters, and uh, Joe Coy get together and do a Vietnamese accent. I think that would be the funniest Because <laughs> all of you just nailed it. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Well, enough about me and my laptop issues. We've, we've managed <laughs> to uh, subdue the technical difficulties. So, mate, what's been going on with you? Have you been coping in isolation? What have you been up to? Man, to be honest, I haven't been coping. <laughs> I haven't had a haircut. Look at me. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you look good, you feel good. And uh, so it's been tough looking in the mirror every morning, uh, hair all out of place. Um, you know, I'm very sensitive about my hairline. That's, that's one thing a lot of people know about me. So when the hair grows, it really shows the deficiency <laughs> of hair on the hairline. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if I could just get a haircut, that'd be good. So I don't know. I'm, I'm messaging some of my uh, mates who are barbers and seeing if I can... Uh, yeah, not only proof that they they don't have COVID, but also they can come over for a decent price and cut my hair, you know? So yeah. other than that, I've just uh, just been trying to stay sane mentally, but also not gain weight. So I've been working out here and there or trying to find the motivation. Um, yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, for people who may not know, your physique, mate, I saw you post a story on your Instagram page the other day and uh, you were sitting at about 0.6% body fat, mate. There were abs on abs. You were standing there flexing. I was like, this guy's been putting in some work, huh? You know, I don't want to brag, but um, that was from a while back. (laughs) 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 People don't need to know that. Listen, Elliot, usually we go on stage every night and we tell jokes, people laugh, and we suck up all that external validation. Now that we're stuck at home, we're not getting any love. So, (laughs) old jokes or old... Uh, images of our 
excellent physique to try and get those uh, approvals, you know. So this, we need that confident boost to get out of lockdown. And right now, I've been getting it through old Instagram photos. Traditionally, I guess you've had a, uh, a different upbringing to most of us. I mean, you, you joke a lot about my white privilege and I think uh, for once, I, I, will, I will definitely agree with you in that, in that regard because we've had very different upbringings, that's for sure. Um, your story is nothing short of remarkable. Um, I remember you told me a little bit about your story at the Comics Lounge one night and uh, it was one of the most moving, most inspirational stories I've ever heard. Um, and you know, to see where you're at now and the success you've had as a comedian and I've seen you perform and, you know, you're, you're great to watch and you're a comedian I really look up to. So I'd like to start from the early days. Tell us about your upbringing, um, where you were brought up and what life was like for you growing up. Yeah, definitely, man. And always a, um, a pleasure talking to you about it, man. Uh, thanks, thanks for listening. You know, that's a, that's a thing a lot of people, um, you know, unless you're comfortable, you don't really open up about your personal life to people. So... Uh, goodness to you for making me feel comfortable enough to open up every time uh, we catch up. Um, so I, I was born in a village called Tuawa and it's in Sudan. Uh, and it's like a small village uh, under a mountain, uh, it's a huge mountain, but it's no longer there anymore. Unfortunately, I think it's a military base now. So I was born there, one of six. Uh, I've got a twin sister. And uh, at the age of when I was about five, uh, my dad left the family um, because he was a, he was a, and became addicted to alcohol and just became abusive alcoholic, um, and then um, he was no longer in our life from the age of five. And then we moved into uh, Sudan, uh, the capital city of Sudan, Khartoum, and uh, there we unfortunately single mom, six kids in like a matriarchal uh, system, uh, patriarchal system, which was Sudan, um, and she's a matriarch. So that was really hard for her to go from being this stay-at-home mum to uh, now being, you know, not only a provider, but also security um, and, and also a mum. And so we became homeless when I was probably around uh, seven years old. So we became homeless. Uh, and when I tell people, oh, we became homeless, they're like, oh, you mean like you stayed in people's um, uh, like front yards or backyards? I'm like, no, homeless is in like sleep on the streets, uh, you know, eat out of bins to survive. Um, so by day, we'll be like looking for food, begging. Um, and by night, you know, we'll be huddled up around each other. So it's like mum in the middle, three this way, three that way. And she'll just try to make sure she's awake and keeps an eye on us while we, we slept. You know, just trying to survive nights. Um, and some nights, you know, you'd wake up because cars would just come so close to hitting you. It's just, you could hear them and you wake up and mum will just be like, sorry, I go back to sleep, you know? But she can only obviously uh, stay up this long for so long um, before she starts falling asleep. So some nights uh, when we all slept, there'd be like attempted kidnaps. So it's like full on um, crazy, you know, like now I look back at it and I go, oh, um, I don't think that was a, a good life, you know. <laughs> but back then, you don't know any better, you know, because everyone around you, it's like everyone around you is on the same boat. And if not, they're a little bit better. So you're just like, oh, there's just a little bit better. But this is what we consider like lower class, but no, we were like homeless, you know? So we come here as adults, we process what happened and we just go, holy shit, that's crazy. Oh, you tell, like when I told you or, or I tell my um, Australian mates and they're like, what are you talking about? You had that upbringing? I'm like, yeah, I did. And then they're like, that's crazy. I'm like, oh, it wasn't that bad, you know? But it, it was terrible looking back at it now. 
So on nights where there would be like attempted kidnaps and rapes and, uh, you know, um, my mom would, would uh, this, this would keep her up most nights. So she would get, I remember one time she bought a rope and she tied three this way and three, three kids to her left, three kids to her right. And she'd go to bed, you know, so if someone tried to kidnap her, the rope would wake everyone up, you know, so that was like homeless people's version of like security, you know, where she would just grab and full on man. And uh, there was one night where, yeah, someone tried to kidnap my sister and we all woke up and we'll all fight them off and they'll go away and then we'll just have them back up and try to go back to sleep again, you know? Um, So being in Australia, I think just the fact that we're in a place where we've got a roof of our head, food in our stomach, no matter what happens, you know, now people go, oh, you know, this lockdown must be horrible. Yeah, the lockdown's horrible, but I compare my current uh, life now to where I was and I'm like, you know, like, well, it's, it's kind of, this might sound a bit funny, but I remember when I first met you, I've always been brought up to know that you know, you can always judge someone by the strength of their handshake. And I remember the first time I met you and before I knew anything about you, you had one of the firmest handshakes and you looked me dead in the eye and you introduced yourself. And there was something about you that like, it was almost like a character that I hadn't, you know, that I could just tell, I mean, this guy has a strong character. And would you say that, you know, having that really difficult upbringing instilled a really strong sense of self and character in you? Is that one of the reasons why you're the way that you are you think absolutely man i would say you know uh, in all of us our past plays a huge part that strong handshake when i looked at you in the eye and gave it to you is because you know when i saw you i can just tell you know you just got like firm jaw facial structures in your jaw and i just i just <laughs> knew you're gonna have a strong handshake as well so i wasn't gonna come second best to you you know so i just went <laughs> <laughs> I was dislocated my thumb. I was like, gee, where is this? I got it. Oh, all right. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah, my past definitely uh, plays a huge part in who I am uh, today. And uh, like my mom is is someone who, uh, you know, 100% responsible for who I am uh, today as a man. And she's always... She's always taught us to treat people out of, out of love and respect, you know, and that what, how we want people to treat us and, and look at us is how we should be treating them and looking at them, you know, and, uh, and yeah, she's just always operated out of love and she's always many times proven to us that when we do operate out of love, that it comes back in a positive way, whether it's through this person or that person or in the near future, but it always comes back to, to, to give back to us in a way where we don't expect it, but we're so grateful and, it's that's good karma coming back and proof of that is like I said many times over she's proven about tell her this uh, one time in Sudan so what happens is when the kids are playing on the street sometimes the army comes into the streets and just kidnaps kids right and just takes them to like and turns them into child soldiers or sends them to war so this one time me and my younger brother me and my older brother we're playing on the streets and we see this truck come through the army truck and so we ran and I ran and hid but I didn't know where my older brother was. And so I came out and the truck took him, right? So they, put it, they got him in the truck and they took him. And then I went home and I was crying. And I was like, mom, they took uh, my older brother. Um, and she goes, what do you mean they took him? And I explained to her the truck and uh, she started crying. And then two hours later, I kid you not, bro. Uh, my brother knocks on the door and comes through the door. And my mom just starts crying and grabs him and goes, what happened? And he was crying. And he goes, uh, he goes, the... <clears throat> the 
when I was in the truck, one of the soldiers or one of the person in charge recognized my face and he goes, do you know this lady that works in the market selling tea? And she's Ethiopian lady. And he goes, yeah, that's my mom. And he goes, uh, he goes, stop the truck, get, let this kid off. You know, so he, he let him off. He goes, go home to your mom. And he came home to my mom. And the story behind that soldier is that, well, see, when my mom, in order to make sure that we survived, she bought like from the money that we begged, like crumbs pretty much, bought this little table where she sells tea and coffee. And so in the market every day, she would carry this little uh, table and she'd go to the market and she would sell tea. And like I said, the payment is like crumbs, not even 50 cents a day or a dollar a day, right? But um, when people come and they don't have money or they really, she, she was known to make the best tea in town, right? And when they don't have money and stuff, my mom didn't really hold it against them. She just goes, it's all right, you can have tea on me. And uh, next time you do, you can come and pay. Don't worry about it, you know? So even though she was poor and she had six kids to feed and were living on the street and needs every cent, she still didn't operate out of hate and uh, I guess uh, out of fear or out of mistrust or greed. She always operated out of love. So she gave out free stuff, right? Whenever she could. And that, uh, that sergeant or that officer that was on the truck, for like a whole year, um, uh, my mom would like give him free coffees, she would give him food where she can because he didn't have anything. So then he ended up joining the army and becoming like a, um, an officer in the army. And, and he happened to be on the same truck that had her son like a year later. And so he recognized him and he let him off. So that's like good karma coming back to her in a way yeah. where she never expected it. This is mind blowing me. <laughs> yeah, man, that's, a, that's an amazing story, man. It, it just goes to show, yeah, it definitely comes back around what you dish out comes back around leads by example man when she's when she says you know operate out of love she really means it and she's mm. been tested many times over and over over again and always leads me you know out of love and uh, now that we were like when we moved to perth uh, australia I, uh, just recently when i went back for fringe festival we were talking you know and sometimes we have you know talks about uh, africa and where we're at um and I was telling her, I said, mom, remember that tea you used to always make that gave you this reputation in the market where everyone would be like, go find this Ethiopian lady and she sells the best tea, right? And I go, what's that tea? Can you make it for me? And, and she was making tea for me. And she's like, this is exactly like Sudan. And I was watching her secretly and her secret is like four or five spoons of sugar. <laughs> the, tea, the tea is just sweet. <laughs> and I go, I drink that. And she's like, it's exactly like the way I make it in Sudan. And I'm like, no, that's like, I mean, you're responsible for diabetes in Sudan. This, this like four, four five sugars. I go, you're mad. I'm not drinking that. And she just laughed and she's like, oh, they, they won't know now, anyways. I'm in Perth, Australia. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's a crazy story. So just before we get to where you're at now with your career and uh, the success you've had as a comedian. How did you get out of that situation? Like what, what, what made you, how did you get to Australia from, from being homeless on the streets over there? Um, my mom just, again, just a uh, really determined woman, you know, and really someone who, even when there is like, when you feel there's no hope and your back is against the wall and you don't know what's on the other side or you don't know what's good, but you just want something better than what you have now and you just believe and you fully back it up and constantly just fight to get it. And then you finally get it. That's, that's exactly the situation between um, where we were in Sudan and mom actually applying for the United Nations refugee visa. And uh, 
you know, people on the streets, people in the community would see this single mom of six kids on the streets. And they, and obviously people would talk about what's, what's the situation with that lady, you know? And, uh, and obviously uh, some people felt really sorry for her and were able to recommend ideas and situations. And so some, um, someone might've mentioned or she might've seen at that. Because um, there's word around town as well as like people leaving this country to a better country, you know? And a better country is anywhere in the Western world. So... Um, so when we were, when we were there, obviously we had nothing and, and my mom just started applying for a refugee visa. So we had to go for interviews here and there. Um, they would check your background stories. They will do a medical tests to see if you're actually related, you know, cause some people claim other people to be relatives when they're not. Um, so we went through all this and four years of just struggling in and out to try and get out of Sudan, to come to uh, a Western country, to start a new life. And uh, what happened is corruption is huge within um, the immigration office that was uh, stationed where we were. And so we believed, and my mom believed that uh, our visa was sold on many occasions. So we would get approved and it would get sold to someone else to, to leave the country with, right? Mm. And so it's really whoever has the most amount of money gets, gets whatever you, they want to get. Um, and so we tried, we tried, we tried. And uh, my mom eventually just had enough because we failed like six times. And she had our file and she was on the bus crying, right? And on the bus was like one of the um, high officials from the United Nations that worked at the Djibouti uh, office. And he recognized her from one of the offices. Again, because of her story, single mom, six kids, a lot of people knew about her case, you know? So he asked her why she was crying and she said, oh, she's been declined so many times. And, you know, the kids, are, they've got no future. They're probably going to die. Um, and she's just sick and tired of everything. And that, um, you know, she believes that there's a lot of corruption with, with our cases and that it's been sold and we've, we actually have been approved and that we're being mistreated. And so he personally took her file and took it with him to uh, the Djibouti office and made people investigate it and, and put her case forward again. So revived our case and he managed to get us a final interview to determine whether we could leave Sudan and come to Australia or not. And... As kids, you know, we obviously didn't know how important this interview was. But we just knew if mum was sad, we were sad. Something was not right. If mum cried, we all cried, you know. So my mom is trying to stress to us how important this interview is. And, she, and I remember at one stage, you know, she goes to us, if we don't pass this interview, I'm going to kill myself. You know, this is, this is a, a very important interview. And when she said that to us, we were just like, yo, I think this interview is really important, <laughs> you know we better do something with this interview. This interview is super important because this woman is saying, you know, this is our mom and she's like threatening to take our own life if we fail this interview. So it wasn't one of those where we just looked pretty and we went there and we just said nothing and did nothing. We had to do something. Like we couldn't take a no for an answer. So we went there and we spoke, uh, my mom spoke, the translator was speaking. And this is the first time I saw a Caucasian man in a suit in power. And I'm like, wow, this, this, and I was like 11, 10, 11 years old. And in my eyes, I'm like, this man's responsible for our life, right? So the translator and my mom were talking and talking and, and, and he said, no. He said, you guys will get sent to Ethiopia because you're Ethiopians. But we, we were going from a place where we had nothing to a place where we had nothing. So it was just dying in a different country, but we were from that country, you know? So my mom started crying and we noticed mom was crying. So we all started crying because we're like, this is not good, you know? And then my brother... 
he, he, on many occasions, my older brother, who was only like at the time, maybe 11 or 12 years old, we're only a year and a half to two years apart, just braved in and out. He started crying and explained and started talking. You know, it's very hard as a kid to talk when you're like covered in tears and you're sniffing and going, you know, but he, he forced himself to talk. And he was explaining to the lady and saying, please, you know, look at us. Like we're dying here. I've got scars on my face because every time I go to the market to try and fend for my family, like get, sell something to make money or to bring food back home. My brothers and sisters are dying. I get attacked in the market. I'm only like 12 years old. You know, I'm, I'm just a kid. And, you know, it's like, help us, please. And then the lady started crying. And then the, the uh, Caucasian man in the suit, he started crying. And he really started to see we're all trying to talk. And then, yeah, he just stamped our passport, uh, stamped our uh, paperwork and said, okay, you guys go to Australia, you know? So when we landed in Perth, Australia, we were just like, first thing we did, bro, they're like, this is your house. We're like, this is our house? They're like, yeah, this is your house. And it was a rental. And then they go, we walked in and we saw a, a big, on, on the table was like a fruit basket. And we saw this fruit basket was covered in apples. And one thing we couldn't afford in Sudan when we were in the streets, we'd always look around and we'd see apple, people selling apple, and we could never afford it. So then, uh, and usually we would save up to buy like one apple to share. So now we come to Perth, Australia in the basket is apples. And we just rush straight to the apples and we're like, one for you, one for me, one for you. <laughs> and the Caucasian people that were helping us were just looking at us like, what's wrong with these kids? Like, <laughs> A banana, this is a bonus. <laughs> so it's just, it's mind blowing, you know. Man, that is the most crazy story. And um, I remember you, you obviously shared that story with me at the comics lounge one night, and like I pretty much had tears in my eyes. Like I had to fight back the tears just then. It's it's so moving, man. It's it's like and it's so foreign for, for me and a lot of people that I grew up with because I know we joke about it a lot, but in comparison. Yeah like worlds apart but now we're somehow meeting in the middle um and you know it's um, it must be amazing for you to know that your life could have been very different had that man not stamped that form it's it must be a crazy thing looking back at that moment definitely if we if we didn't come to australia we'd be dead 100%. When I was in Sudan, um, I wasn't looking at my family and looking at myself and going, wow, when I grow up, I'm going to be this or be that, or I can't wait to study for this field or be in this department. Or It's like you were nothing. When we were in Sudan, it's, it was just more so like, how much more before we give up and just start dying off, you know? And I, was, I always knew that I always went, you know what? Like my mom would be first to go because she was always just the protector and just taking all the full brunt. And then um, you know, my older sister was the second person taking all the hits and then my brother. So I always figured that's how the order would go when we start dying, you know, but I did not think that we would ever like, there was no, oh, I can't wait to do this or do that when I grow up or what do I want to, uh, you know, specialize in or there was no future. It was just more like, oh, this is so painful. It's like, how long do we have to do this before, you know, we just call it quits. But, um, and a lot of people that were with us around that time, now that most of them have died uh, or they've gone missing or they've, you know, just gone into wars. And so we're very, very lucky. And whenever my mom now, sometimes, you know, now we've been here in over 20 years, we get carried away and we start, you know, walking and talking like we're, 
Like we're not from, you know, where we're from. And so whenever my mom's like, oh, there's a bill for electricity and it's this much. And I go, well, remember that time when there was no bills and we were yeah. starving and, dying and, you know, this is winning lotto. And she'd go, oh, okay, fine, you're right, you know. So very lucky to be here and very grateful. So obviously comedy, I mean, I know there's, a, there's an old saying that says some of the greatest comedy is rooted in tragedy. But maybe, maybe, maybe not that tragic. I'm not sure. Like that's, so I'm just wondering, when did the thought cross your mind where you were like, I'm going to be a comedian now. I'm, I'm going to do stand-up comedy. Like when did that come about? Because it's a crazy journey from, from that to where you're at now. Yeah, I, um, I, I never thought I would be doing stand-up comedy as a profession. I can tell you that straight up. You know, there's no one I know growing up or no, no friends that I have. I didn't even know there was a community for comedy. Uh, I didn't even think you could do it at, at this level. I always thought you had to be like Kevin Hart or Russell Peters or at those levels, people you see on TV before you're a comedian. But um, obviously, they all started somewhere. So uh, for me, it's a lot of my comedy, yes, talks about my, my life in Sudan, uh, mainly so around my mom. So what it's like for a traditional Ethiopian mom to transition into the Australian way of life. That's where a lot of my comedy comes from. And that's what a lot of the viewers that come to my show, that's what they love and that's what they talk about. Um, so I, I can do like a full hour just on my mom alone, right? And sometimes um, African communities go, oh, can we hire you? And you can just do like half an hour show about your mom and just tell stories. And so, and, and my mom loves it, you know? And sometimes people go, stop making fun of your mom. She's your mom, respect her. And I go, mom, you know, this joke that I do, yeah, is that all right? And she's like, of course it's all right, it's funny. And you're my son, you can do whatever you want. Don't worry about those people, you know? So as long as my mom gives me the tick of approval, that's all I care about. Um, but, you know, coming from Sudan to here and transitioning to this life in Australia, that's what my comedy is around. But before I was doing comedy, uh, obviously I was, I was, you know, I was a... I had my own business in Korea van um, where I had contracts for like eight years with companies, Australia Post, Qantas, uh, Air Express and all that. I did, at one stage I did Korea Monday to Friday, then Friday night and Saturday night I did taxi and Sunday night I did security and then Monday I was back in Korea. So I was doing this for like a period of two years, right? And more money, more problems, you know, it's just for what I was making like three and a half grand, four grand sometimes a week, but it was just not enough. You just always have problems or there was money was always like not enough. And uh, I realized I wasn't happy, you know, and then I lost my driver's license from like speeding fines and all that. As a career taxi driver, you're always speeding, man. Yeah. Even when you don't want to. You... So I lost my license and then I went into banking because my ex worked in banking and she goes, why don't you just come in banking? And so I went into banking and used experience that I had as a sales rep in door to door sales which I also talk about my comedy. So all this line of work, I talk about them in my comedy as well. So I went into banking and I became a, a home lending business manager for Bankwest. And, uh, and while that was happening, I, uh, me and my ex broke up, right? So when we broke up, I was devastated. This was the first heartbreak that, that occurred to me. And I'll tell you this, Elliot, psychologically, the trauma of, because we were together for 10 years, engaged for one, about to be married, then she called it off. And so that psychological trauma was something that made me, um, I think, question everything about my life. And the trauma was way worse than what I went through in Sudan in terms of being able to handle it. So it was just something I'm not used to. I've never had a heartbreak before. I didn't know how to handle it. So that trauma just made me analyze everything about my life. And a lot of the things was um, not to have fear, not to judge a book by its cover in terms of like, not to assume 
an occupation is ridiculous just because um, society says it's not it's not a job or it's not something like because you know in African um, households if you decide to be a comedian or a doctor a banker or anything like that they'll be like are you crazy you know they'll send you back home for some like uh, I don't know holy water or some shit to try and like you know get you thinking right again so you know as a business banker it took me three years to climb within Bankwest and I was on like with bonuses and stuff you could easily go over 100k if you hit target right so gave all that up purely because I wasn't happy, but I went to a psychic, right? And this, and I don't believe in psychics, but I went there out of a joke because my sister went there and she was like, you should go there. I reckon it'll be funny what she says about you. So I went there as a joke and she was just laughing the fact that I told her I was a banker and she's like, your spirit says you're to do with people, you know? And there's, I don't know what, what your job is. I don't know what you're like, but um, I see you performing in front of a crowd. Um, and you're definitely on stage performing. The energy is beautiful. That's what you're supposed to do with your life. So find it. If you don't, you're going to be an old man and you're going to regret the way you lived your life. It's those words alone that shook me even when I went home, right? Because I do not want to have any more regrets in my life. I was 29, went through everything that I went through, that breakup, and now I looked back. Uh, I was regretting a lot of things about my life and I didn't want to do that anymore. So I told her before I left that I actually wrote a page of stand-up jokes that I wanted to try it like four months ago. And she goes to me, that's what you're supposed to do. Go and try it. If you don't, you're going to regret it. So as stupid as it, it felt while I was doing banking, I just, I went on stage and I, I went and got some training. And then I went on stage for the first time and my heart was racing and oh my God, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack and was in Perth at a club called Shapiro's on a Tuesday. And uh, I just got on stage. I got like five minutes set in, uh, two applause breaks. I had like 10 people there that, um, that knew me, that came to watch. And afterwards, the, everyone, the compliments were positive. I felt good. I enjoyed the impact that I had on the people that were there. That in itself was what just made me go, oh, my God, I have found my calling, you know. And when I was driving home, dude, I was just tears. I was banging my steering wheel. I was just like reborn again, you know, to go from Africa and then thinking I'm going to die in Africa, but then come to Australia and then think, yeah, this is my life now, the businesses and, the, you know, relationship back to be married, kids and retire. Then that ends. And then now I'm reborn as a single man who's a comic. Oh my God. It was just like different forms of life, you know? Man, it's such an amazing transformation. It's, it's, it's incredible too, because watching you perform, it's like, one of the things that, and this might just be my personal opinion, but I think this of a lot of comedians, like with some things you either have it or you don't. Um, like you have a really calm aura on the stage and you, you have a good stage presence. And, you know, when, when you talk, people listen. And you can have the best jokes in the world, but if you don't have that almost, it's almost like a God-given skill that you either have it or you don't, that stage presence, that people want to listen to what you have to say. You can say the best jokes in the world that people aren't going to pay attention. They're not going to laugh. So, um, you know, watching you on stage, you've got the marriage of both. And it's interesting hearing your first gig was a great success because not many comedians can say that about their first gig. Um, you know, most comedians, when they do their first gig, it's, it's, it's a horror story. So to have two applause breaks in your first ever stand-up gig, man, that's, that's like a... Shawshank Redemption like moment when you're punching your steering wheel like that's what more can you ask 
it was hectic. I remember one of my mates who actually worked with me to try uh, and help me put my first show together. He was there at my first set and he just looks at me and he's like, I go, what did you think? And he's one of my toughest critics. And he just goes, man, you're about to go on a journey. You better strap in. That, that was amazing, you know, because he saw a few other people come on before I came on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like a, a lot of people, um, I guess when, as comics, we know, uh, the trauma that comics go through and the reason why we're able to do what we're able to do um, and be in front of strangers most nights and risk that rejection. But for me, standing on that stage, doing what I did, um, although I was going through a lot of pain right in the background, I, you know, my 10-year relationship just ended. I hated my job. You know, um, I, went, I had issues uh, with, within my family. I was fighting with people. Um, uh, I had an engagement party that my mom didn't come to that I had a fallout with her over it. And I was just, I, had, I was going through all this trauma in my head and I was trying to fix my life again, you know? And I knew like my ex leaving, all the stuff that I went through, I was on my knees, I was in tears, I hated my life. And I knew that wasn't the end for me and that I needed to come back. But if I was to come back, I was like, I'm not gonna live the same life that I lived. I'm gonna be impactful. You know, when I die, I wanna be remembered by millions, not just, by my family and close friends, you know, I, I want to, I want my work to be very impactful and I want to reach as many people as I can, you know, and I feel like I've done that now um, because of the decisions, the conscious decisions that I made, the actions that I took, the fears that I didn't let get in the way of me wanting to do this one thing. So my why was very strong to why I wanted to do it, you know, so I didn't care what people thought of me anymore. And I just went in hard, man. And if I was to die, uh, today i'd be i'd be very proud and happy of what i've done so um so I'm very grateful that i went through what i went through to be where i'm at today because otherwise there's no way there's no way that i'd be able to be a stand up comedian i'd be able to stand in front of people and speak and tell jokes and risk uh public humiliation you know when they don't laugh it cuts deep you know so there's no way i'd be able to risk that if i didn't have a strong why and and so my past is where my why comes from Man, that's just like, it's so inspirational, man, just listening to you speak. I could listen to you all day. Like, it's just it's so, <laughs> it's so foreign for me to, to, to hear something like that. Your story is, is incredible. Um, Thanks. I, I really just, I'm just being honest, you know, speaking from the heart. There's no bullshit. And I think as humans, we can sense when there's bullshit and someone's just trying to uh, clout, you know, we can sense it. So yeah. uh, with me, it's like, there's, there's none of that, you know. I'm, I'm purely on stage trying to make jokes uh, to make people laugh and happy. And I'm trying to make as many as I can laugh and happy. I know I'm not going to make everyone laugh and happy. I do get feedback sometimes when I say or do something that people don't agree with. And I take, you know, criticisms on board. I analyze and I see where I can tweak to try and create a space so that everyone can be part of it. At times where I can't and there's indifferences, I just go my own way and I accept that this person doesn't, is not interested in what I have to say or do. Um, but where I can, you know, if I do make a mistake, I definitely don't hesitate to say sorry um, and, and, yeah, make the best of the situation. But being honest and genuine is a big key. Yeah, man. So that's quite interesting listening to that because your comedy is, is very clean, isn't it? And there's not many comedians out there at the moment who do really clean cut comedy. Like there's heaps of comedians that drop F-bombs and C-bombs and swear words. I've never seen you swear on stage. So what's the reasoning behind that with your, with your comedy? Um, when I, obviously, uh, when you first start comedy, you don't know uh, any better, you know what I mean? So I didn't know anything about comedy. I didn't know how to write. I didn't know um, 
I always had a, I've always felt I had a great sense of humor um, when it comes to making people laugh, especially, and I enjoyed it as well. I enjoyed every conversation I had with someone when I get a laughter out of them. I enjoyed that. It was just something weird that made me feel like, oh, you know, I enjoyed that. And so to be able to do it on, you know, on stage in front of a lot of people, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, just, it's liberating. Uh, and when I first went to do a course in stand-up comedy, um, because, you know, that I, I, I flew up straight away when I, I'm always, any business I've gone into, any venture I've gone into, if I went into it, I committed. You know what I mean? I, I put my time, my money, uh, and my energy behind it. I didn't half-ass anything. So when I was in Perth and I was learning stand-up comedy, uh, there was nowhere around in Perth that I could go to do stand-up comedy. I didn't know anyone. I emailed people on Google, nothing. So then I saw Australian Stand-Up School of Comedy uh, on the corner of the screen when I was researching for places to learn comedy. And it said five weeks in Sydney or five nights in Melbourne. So I clicked on the five nights in Melbourne and straight away I put my money behind my, uh, my, my mouth, you know, and I, uh, I, I paid like, um, I think it was 430 for the course. So I flew in. So by the time I flew in, did the course, uh, spending, um, you know, hotel accommodation uh, plus uh, spending money and all that. All up, I was like two and a half grand, uh, spent two and a half grand on it. But when I did the course, Dante uh, was really helpful. And one thing Dante said to me that where, stuck with me. Where was this course? Where was it? It's called Australian Stand-Up School of Comedy. And it's, it's run and it's owned by Dante, you know, African-American comedian. I've never met him, I don't think. Yeah, Dante's got um, an interesting reputation in the community, but he's a really nice guy. Um, and he's, he's very straightforward there's no bullshit to Dante you know if you treat him good he'll treat you good if you if you try to break the rules he'll hold you accountable to it doesn't matter if if you were having drinks or coffee or you were best mates with him the night before it's like if you break the rules he'll hold you accountable so you know I, I got along with Dante I didn't know many Africans in the uh, comedy community as well and you know um I always felt like I was the only African person in the comedy community. So when I came in and uh, Dante was there, sorry, um, now it, it's, it feels like that, but then eventually I've met a lot of other African comedians and, you know, we've, uh, we've started hanging out and doing things together. But when I first came in and saw Dante as an African man, who's also a teacher, I was like, this is amazing. You know, so I really connected with Dante. I was the only African guy in the class. So me and Dante got talking. I did, uh, did some writing, did the jokes. And he said something to me in my first day of class. And he said, Joe, if you, if you ever want to be on TV telling jokes uh, or you want to write for TV, then you write clean. And so it's up to you. If you want to be performing in bars and nightclubs and stuff, then you can say whatever you want, write dirty. But if you want to, if you want to do well and you want to be on TV and you, know, you want to reach as many people as you can, write clean. So I guess um, he's not 100% true, but at the time, because I didn't know any better, I, I, that's what he programmed me to, to write clean, you know? And at the end of the day, I don't want to be on stage saying anything that I, I wouldn't be, that I'm not comfortable saying in front of my family or my mom, you know? Um, and so by writing clean as well, it just leaves my show open to everyone. You know, there's no, anyone can come to the show and have fun and enjoy it. Um, but when I do crowd work, sometimes it does get a little bit, like I tap away at the line, you know? But where I need to do squeaky clean sets, that's a possibility. Um, and yeah, just really being comfortable saying things on stage that I would say in front of my mom is one of the reasons uh, that I write clean. So what's the best moment that you've had as a performer, the most enriching moment where you've kind of pinched yourself and gone, wow, 
you know. Aside from the first gig, obviously getting two applause breaks is crazy for your first ever stand-up gig. But in your career now, what's the best moment from your career where you're just like, I'm made, I've made it, man. I'm doing this. <laughs> um, you know, I've always been a big dreamer. So um, I remember when I first got into comedy, uh, I went and saw Jim Jeffries at the arena and Carly opened up for Jim Jeffries. And I saw him, I was like, oh, that opening act is really good, you know? So I emailed Carly that night and I went, man, I want to sell at the Perth Arena one day, you know? And, uh, and it's like, can you give me any advice, any tips? How do I, because obviously you got to open up first and then you can sell it out. And Carly was, you know, replied. And uh, eventually we became good mates. Uh, and so, but I've always had big dreams. I've always wanted to do uh, big things. And I think to me, when you went from dreaming that to holy shit, this could be a possibility is when I did Perth Fringe uh, in 2016, I believe it was, or 2017. And we had two weeks to sell out a show that had like 265 seater and we ended up selling it out. And so when I, and that was my first solo show with like 265 people in there just packed. And I walked in and my sister's got this look in her face and she's like, oh my God, Joe, it's sold out. And I was like, oh, and I walked in and it was just packed. And I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. And so I got up on stage and, you know, I had a great time. And I was like, this is amazing. This is a possibility that we can easily, you know, build up the followings and, and one day sell out the Perth Arena. So that was like, an awakening to me that I was in the right path. But the most touching moment that I had at my show is my first show. Um, Cause I had my mom there and we recorded the show and I got footage where, you know, I'd be telling jokes about her and our situation back in Sudan and transitioning here. And you know, when I, when I pretend to be my mom in my, in my jokes, you know, I, I, I go, hello, my son, how are you? You know, I, I pretend so I, I take on her mannerisms, you know, Oh, you know, like this, when I talk, it's like, hello, you know, very polite, loving lady. And so doing that in front of her and then occasionally having a look to see her response and she's just got tears <laughs> and she's wiping the tears and she's going, oh, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and everyone laughing and looking at her and patting her in the back and stuff like to me, that was the best moment, you know, like there was a time where. Uh, when we first came in Arabic, you know, the word kiss, it means different to what it means in English. So in English, kiss is obviously kissing. In, in Arabic, kiss is plastic bag, right? Plastic bag. So I was telling the story of how I went to the store with her. And because her English is not very good, she, she would speak in, in English, broken English, and the keywords, she would turn them into Arabic, right? So she'd be like, oh, please, I have kiss, you know? And the person was looking at her traumatized, like, this one was kiss out of me. And I'm looking at her like, what are you in my head? But I'm too stunned to speak. So I'm just looking at her and I'm looking at her and I'm like, holy crap, what is happening? And she's like, I have kiss, please. I have kiss, you know? And I'm looking at her like, woman, just, what is, but I'm not speaking, I'm like traumatized. So I'm sharing this on stage and she's going, oh, it's so true. That <laughs> so, so seeing her there and seeing me tell the story and seeing that, because I tell her she's funny. She just goes, you're just my son. So when I did it in front of like over a hundred people and they were laughing and they were applauding and you know, some people were near her and they were doing patting her going, you're so funny. She was very proud, you know? And so, that's me sharing her story in front of a lot of people in front of her. And she was just, she felt like she was being seen and heard 
where for a big part of her life, she was just this invisible, struggling single mom of six kids. So now, you know, I'm sharing her story and that's, that's one of the biggest uh, touching moments in my career. Yeah. So Joe, moving forward with your career, you said you were a dreamer earlier. Tell me about the vision. What, what, is, what is your mecca? What is your, your zenith goal for 10, 20 years down the track? Where's Joe White in a perfect world? Oh, man. You know, we always think we know. And then the deeper we go into uh, the industry and the more experiences we have, um, what we think to be success starts to change. Um, so when I first came into the game, I'm like, yeah, Perth Arena, I want to sell it out. I want to be successful. That's success. And in a way, I guess that is still something that I want to do that's in my goal. Um, but more so, I just want to reach as many people as I can. You know, I want, I want my work to reach as many people as I can worldwide, not just within Australia. Um, so to do that is I'm doing a lot of online creation, online content. Um, next year, I'm planning to tour America, uh, so rich people there. So just continue to collab and grow and, and amount uh, a huge following so that through those, through those uh, platforms and the followers that I've accumulated, I'm just trying to, I guess, uh, impact. So use my work to impact in a positive way, um, but also uh, promote causes that are close to my heart and, and use whatever exposure that I have to sort of bring attention to causes like that. A lot of it is, um, you know, just single mom foundations. Um, so that's something I'm, I've been trying. I'm thinking of starting a single mom foundation in, you know, uh, using my mom's name just in her honor. Um, and I guess I just want to be, if I had to, if I, if I had to describe it really, Trevor Noah is in a, in a beautiful position that I would love to be in, you know, and that's what I, I want to work towards. So he's got, he's written a book that talks about his life. Um, so I want to do that. That's another way I want to honor my mom and my family. Um, you know, TV host. So I wouldn't mind do, being a TV host and uh, having guests on there that I consider to be interesting and uh, funny and have a story to tell and give them the platform to do so. Um, I want to, uh, he's got the Trevor Noah Foundation. So that's something I want to do for, for single moms. So get like maybe the Yazin Nalako Foundation, which is my mom's name. Um, and uh, just keep growing, reaching, influencing, uh, and just be a household name. That's, that's what I want to do without selling out. Be a household name without selling out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be a household name and be miserable. That's, that's uh -huh. selling out. That's it. True, true, true. Well, mate, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, for everyone watching and listening right now, if you haven't seen Joe White live, you have to go check it out. It's, um, he's a great performer, great bloke, even better bloke off stage. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you definitely go check him out. He's brilliant. Um, so thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, wishing you all the success in the future, mate. You deserve it. Seriously. Thanks, man. Yeah, so if you see the, the show Ethiopian and Still Not Hungry, which is my stand-up show, it doesn't change the name, it's still the same. Um, <laughs> yeah, come out and watch that. <laughs> thanks for having me, brother. I really appreciate it, man. You're a good man, Elliot. Uh, don't ever change. No, right? Doesn't matter what people say, don't ever change, bro. I won't, man. I won't. <laughs> I'm going to stay real, bro. Yeah, hey. Stay real. Stay representing, Elliot. Thanks for watching and listening, guys. We've got more guests lined up and some more comedy videos coming your way. Don't forget to let me know what you thought in the comments. Like, comment, and subscribe. More videos on the way, and I'll see you very soon.